0: Today's Spirit in Action guest has already been here two times previously, but she's got a new book out, so I look forward to talking to Rua Swenerfeld in depth in just a moment about the amazing alternative form of populist action, the transition town movement, and about care for our earth in general. But first, I want to check in with my good friend, Myron Buchholz, about how real change has come about in the nearly 250 years the USA has been around, something he taught in high schools for 34 years. Usually, I get together with Myron face-to-face, but today, we'll have to settle for a short cell phone call. Well, Myron, it's good to have you back for History and Our Best Future. Uh, Today, what I'd like to talk to you about, it's a question of social movements, because Later on, my guest is going to be concerned with the transition town movement. Part of what they call their cheerful disclaimer says that if we wait for governments to act, it will be too little too late. If we act as individuals, it'll be too little. But if we act together, it may be just enough just in time social movements have been so important that got this country in a good and necessary direction. Could you talk a little bit about historically those movements that have had that kind of power and direction?
2: Well, there's been quite a few of them. I like to think that almost all of our basic human rights that we cherish under the Bill of Rights were supported by tremendous effort on the part of regular everyday people to insist on actually having those rights enforced. to I always like to remember that the old Soviet Union had a Bill of Rights that could be argued to be better than ours. The reality was for all the problems with enforcing our Bill of Rights, the uh, Soviet Union didn't uh, attempt to enforce hardly any of them. So what's written on paper doesn't matter. What's actually enforced what actually happens Really is the point. And there's a couple of examples, you know, and most of your listeners will think right away, I'm sure, about civil rights in this country and how Americans of black African ancestry had to fight tooth and nail to be elevated to the level of the citizen. You know, starting with the ending of slavery, of course, didn't matter because just because you end something on paper doesn't mean that it ends for real. And so the fight there continued. One of the favorite pieces of history from that time period is. Of course, the Montgomery bus boycott, but people don't realize sometimes, and we'll think about it, that there were all kinds of actions to protest these segregation rules. One of my favorites is going back to 1946, when a woman named Irene Morgan basically refused to take her seat, that she was ordered to get off a bus, and 11 years previous to Rosa Parks, these movements build over time. The troublemakers, of course, are frequently listed in our history books as such. But when you look at what happened, eventually they created a movement. And eventually that movement led to bigger and bigger movements. And the Montgomery bus boycott is regarded as the most famous mass movement that radically changed our view of segregation across this country eventually. Another one that I'd like to point out is the movement to accept gays in our society. We just recently had the tremendous example of President Obama making the Stonewall Inn a National Historic Site. And in 1969, that was known as the Stonewall Riots, where police would simply just go and harass gay people just because they were gay. And in 1969, they fought back. That is looked at as the beginning of the gay rights movement in this country and now honored with a monument. Well, we have a tremendous, slow, slow, long slog towards where we are today when the Supreme Court finally looked at movements all across the country and people's acceptance that love is love. And now we have gay marriage legalized across the country. Many people are still very angry about that, but I don't think we're going back. And, of course, the third one is another civil rights issue, of course, and that's one of my favorites, and that's women getting the right to vote. You know, Susan B. Anthony is one of those leaders who just simply, you know, regular people, really not a leader, you know, at the time, just a regular person who just simply didn't abide by what she was told to do. And when she tried to vote, the judge fined her and she said, I refuse to pay. And she didn't. The judge wouldn't put her in jail and she walked out. Well, you know, 1873 to the 19th Amendment, 1920, that's a long road. Women fought long and hard chained to the White House fence, force fed by the Woodrow Wilson administration after being imprisoned for demanding the right to vote. You know, just a real interesting long history there of a movement that simply could not be resisted. And eventually the men in charge of government caved across the board and allowed women the right to vote. I think women got the right to vote more than they were allowed to, I suppose is one way to say that. Those are a couple of the more populist uprisings. There's, there's lots of them. I mean, you, it's very difficult to look through any decent history of the United States and not just stumble across them. The union movement would be an example. That's just a group of people getting together and demanding their rights to be treated fairly in the workplace.
0: I bring this up in part because, Myron, and I, I think you're very aware of this, There is a mistaken view now that the way that change happens is you get a lot of people to just contact the legislature, elect the people who will make the change, and that's the way it comes. I have a different view that really change comes from the bottom up. That mass movements happen, and eventually the legislators get, try and get out in front of the movement and say, see, this is the direction I'm leading you. Now, which way should I go? I think that's how it works. What's your impression about how change happens in this country?
2: Well, I think it's always been from the bottom up. Leaders react And there have been numerous cases of presidents making statements about, you know, the people need to force me to do something. And if you have the collective will to do that, you can get it done. I think the Bernie Sanders campaign is kind of a good example of what you're talking about in that Sanders from the very beginning said electing me president isn't going to change anything. Of course, he didn't succeed in getting the nomination, but he was very open and very clear about that. To say that this has got to be a movement of people that's got to be sustained long after he would have been elected president if that would have occurred. So everything is bottom up if it's worthwhile and has to be sustained over time because leaders do not come around quickly to any of these populist movements, Uh, as I mentioned with some of the dates. If you look at Stonewall in 1969 to the Supreme Court decision in 2015, every one of these movements has a long, long history. I used to remind my history students that in a history book, when you turn the page, sometimes you flip 50 to 100 years. And if you don't think about how much time is passing, you get the idea that these things are quick and they're not. Well, that was a quick call with Myron
0: Buchholz. For the 13th installment of History and Our Best Future, find the installments individually on the Nordenspiritradio.org website. But now, on to today's main course, Ruiz Winterfeld, providing environmental leadership for decades, focused for much of the past decade on the Transition Town Movement. And we'll be talking about her newly released book, Rising to the Challenge, the Transition Movement and People of Faith, Rua is a gentle and unstoppable force of nature, and it's great to have her back. Rua, third time on Spirit in Action. Welcome.
3: Thank you. Mark, it's the third time?
0: Third time. You were my guest back in 2005, within the first month or two of when I started. The second time, 2011, with Steve Chase, talking about Transition Town. And so, number three, here we are.
3: What did I talk about in 2005?
0: Let's start over for this interview, Rua. (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, I am. I'm going to. My birthday is next week. I'm going to be 69. It's okay. okay. What did I talk about?
0: Uh, the first time I interviewed you and Lewis together. Ah. Oh. So it was about maybe it was even called Friends in Unity with Nature at that time uh, before it became renamed Quaker Earth Care Witness. But. Anyway, the reason I have you here today is to talk specifically about the materials of your new book, Rising to the Challenge, the Transition Movement, and People of Faith. And you've even got a foreword by Rob Hopkins, but Rua Swinterfeld is the biggest name on the front. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I think Rob Hopkins is the biggest name in the world compared to me. but...
0: In terms of transition, I think that's true. So I just finished it, the night nice before last, as I mentioned. There's any number of questions that I have because I wanted to go deeper into each religion and their connection. You often quoted sometimes a statement by a group, but you also quoted individuals who are representative of a group, as well as talking about the general idea. So I think for our listeners, one of the most important questions is going to be, why faith? Do we have to bother with it at all? As you say in the book, there are people who are not affiliated with any faith who are a very strong part of the Transition Town movement. Why faith?
3: So I'll just back up to say that the Transition Town movement is not faith-based. It's community-based. And that there are lots of wonderful people in the movement who don't talk about whether they have a faith or not. What I wanted to do was introduce these two groups— We have this wonderful transition town movement. We have people who really care about the earth, who care about people, who care about egalitarianism. And I believe that my faith drives me to do the kinds of work that I do in the world. And so I wanted to introduce people of faith, multi-faith, to the transition movement and I wanted to encourage transitioners, as we're called, to tap into the resource of people of faith in their community, because they can be a resource, because there's such a great match. If you read the statements from the different faith groups, they're all very strong statements about the concerns about climate change, but also a concern about caring for the earth. So it seemed like a great match. I did get a little bit of a pushback at one point. I had a radio interview in Vermont. Some people, well, this guy on the Montpelier transition group wrote to the whole group, and I'm on that list, that he's an atheist. And he felt that I was trying to co opt the transition movement by bringing people of faith in to make it a faith based movement. And that, you know, as an atheist, that this is terrible. I'm going to quit. Oh, oh, I'm, I was going to write to Rob Hopkins. And then I saw that he wrote the forward. The guy'd never read my book, you know, so he just made these assumptions. And then another guy picked it up and put it through the New England network. Oh, well, I agree with him, you know, maybe blah, 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 you know, Rue is really saying the wrong thing. and <sighs> So I did the Quakerly thing, I think. You I you stayed silent. <laughs> no, I stayed silent for a little bit. I gave some thought to it. And I realized that atheists are marginalized in this North America of ours because we are a... Christian country. We are a faith-based country. It started that way. So many things are about faith and that non-theists among Quakers feel marginalized. And so... I decided to write from the heart place to the goodness inside of him. I told him how sorry I was that he had felt this and that I understood that marginalization and that if he knew me, he'd know that I'm not that kind of person, that I'm inclusive, that I I work in lots of different situations, and I want everyone invited to the table, which I talk about a lot. And I wrote to the, the other person. And then other people on the New England network said, I know Rua. She's not like that. And so they kind of got into it. And I actually got nice emails back from both of them. They didn't apologize. One said, I think you're still wrong, but...
0: I think you're still wrong. I didn't read the book, but I still have my opinion.
3: Yeah. So I, so I want to talk, then bring it back to this book. This book is an introduction to people who are on either side. It is not to exclude anyone from that introduction or the discussion. And I think the transition movement, it has something called inner transition. It talks about being grounded on the earth. It's really, well, Rob Hopkins is Buddhist, and he certainly came at whatever it how it developed from that basis because we all who are people of faith come from that, and an atheist comes from their understanding of their place in the world. We bring what we believe, all of our beliefs, to that table. What we have to find is the language to include everyone, to care and to listen and to really respect what people have to offer, regardless of the other pieces of their lives. So I learned a lot from that. I actually thank them for teaching me to make sure that I'm careful about it.
0: I know there's a really major part we really should start the interview with, and that is what is transition, because there are a number of listeners who won't know that but I want to call out right away, definitions are so important. You are opposing atheist versus people of faith. And actually, I, I heard a broadcast by Bill Mayer, the TV personality. And he, at one point, someone was offering that it's not only religious people who kill. Think about Soviet Union or you know, Stalin in Russia and so on. And he said, well, yeah, but they're a secular religion. So he was actually saying there are people of faith who are atheists. I don't know exactly what people of faith means to you or to others.
3: Very good. Well, I guess in my mind, when I was writing this, because it says, and people of faith right on the cover, I was thinking about people who are involved in various faiths, religions, whatever they call themselves, And I work on the board of the Vermont Interfaith Power and Light. And one of our challenges is always to find language that describes us that is describing everyone who's present. So you have to be careful. Because what one person says is who we are is a different kind of language than the other. So I was thinking about the multi-faith movement that's going on now where people are coming together, Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and pagans and Quakers and Christians to rise up and care about this planet. So those are the people I was thinking about. I wasn't thinking about atheists, per se. But they need to be, everybody just needs to be invited to the table, whether they, you know, whatever they are.
0: The point I wanted to draw towards is, and it's not one of the reasons that you mentioned, although I think it's extremely important, people with a deep spiritual motivation who learn to gather with other people have the power of corporate witness. There may be a perfectly wonderful person right there who's not affiliated with anyone, maybe a spiritual person, but is used to identifying as an individual only. Their power is diluted because they're not the bundle of sticks which has the strength that a single stick does not have. So that's one of the reasons, I think, to draw on religious folk who are of the right motivation to draw on their corporate power can enhance Transition Town, because Transition Town is, in fact, community itself. So they're bringing with them a lot of native abilities in how to work as a group, which it needs to be said, in the United States, we're so me, 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 I'm a rugged individualist that we often do not know how to play well in the sandbox, and the sandbox suffers for it.
3: Exactly. Well, I think that that's one of the things about the transition town movement that really has brought me to it is that they talk about resilient communities. We're not talking about sustainability. We don't have to talk about climate change or peak oil. We can talk about resilience. No matter who the people are in a community, whether it's a neighborhood or a street or an island, there are all those transition initiatives that are all those things. Everybody wants their community to be resilient. Resilience is that ability to survive shocks that occur. Those shocks can be flood, drought, reducing oil availability, rising oil prices, gasoline prices, just a whole range of things that can happen to our communities, and we want to be resilient. And the way that we're resilient through Transition Town is, one, we just get to know each other. And one of the things that is so interesting is that from the beginning, they've said, we've got to have fun together. This cannot be another doom and gloom. Let's meet once a week and talk about how the world's going down the drain. We have to get together. We have to get to know each other. We have to build trust. We have to find those ways to feel connected with one another. And that through those connections, we begin to know each other. Like in my community, in in my transition community, we have a resource, an asset map. People filled out forms that they said what kind of skills they've got that they'd be willing to share with other people, what kind of assets they've got that they're willing to share with other people in times of need, what kind of skills would someone like to learn, And what kind of assets might be needed in a certain time. All the different kinds of things that people have. Like we've got a little tiny pickup truck that we inherited from Lewis's father. People in the community use it. And, you know, it's all that kind of stuff. And to lead to what our community is going to do next and already is being done I think, a worldwide, is having a repair cafe. So in a repair cafe, people come in with their sewing machines and tools and all the different things that are needed to repair, all the little things that exist in our homes. And then there are fixers, and then there are the people who bring in something to be fixed. One model that the Pasadena uses is that the person who's getting it fixed sits across and the payment is to share a story from their life. So what's it about? Is it about fixing things or is it really about connecting? It's using that as a connection. It's using something to have fun, have food there, you know, just to get together. So the resilience is this ability to weather those shocks. Does it matter if you believe in peak oil or believe in climate change or whether you're going to vote for the Republican nominee or the Democratic nominee, or the Independent, or whatever. It doesn't matter. That doesn't matter about resilience. So if you are all like-minded, you might be doing other kinds of things, too. So with our group right now, we've done a little bit around the gas pipeline that's being built, frack gas pipeline going through Vermont. And because we have people who are active in that, we're connected to government through our energy committee and the conservation commission and the town council. So I'm going with this because it's egalitarian and it really does invite everybody there.
0: Have you had people in Charlotte, your town you live in, who said, you know, down with the transition movement, does it have its natural enemies in your town?
3: No. And we do live in a pretty wealthy town with a kind of wide variety of political kind of thinking. No one has said down. Might they think we're irrelevant because we haven't talked to all 4,500 people in the town? that's possible. But the people that I do meet that see the kind of physical manifestations of what we've done are gardens at the library that give food to the food shelf. Our garden's at the congregational church in town. That's right, busy place to drive that they see. It goes to the food shelf, the garden's at the school. People see these things. They really like it. We collect electronic waste once a year to keep it out of the landfill. It's free. They just bring it to us. We contract with the state and a recycling center to give it to them. And they, you know, take it all apart and get all the precious metals and pieces that are good and put it into metal recycling. So people see these things and they like it. How could they not like it?
0: That makes sense, except that usually at some point you probably get involved and we should have a town ordinance. You don't do this or that. I mean, we're having a drought. You shouldn't be watering your lawn. That would be California, right? Mm -hmm. Or some such thing. At that point, some people say, you know, stay off of mine. I have my personal realm that I'm supposed to be able to control and I don't want government sticking its nose in. So do you connect with government in that way that will step on toes, I think?
3: Well, no, I don't think stepping on toes. We did a lot of work for a couple of years trying to get a pub started in town. We don't have a kind of gathering place which is really essential. We can rent spaces. But we needed the town to explore more about their septic, to figure out how to sell septic services and water into the town because the town has not enough for people who start something can't dig a well there. They can't do it. They have to use whatever is the town resource. Well, that town is still working on how they should price it out. But it wasn't I mean everybody thought it would be a great idea to have a gathering place. So we don't have or we haven't had a situation in our community. We have been pro sidewalks in the downtown, but it was a vote that happened and you know they voted it down and then that was over. But it was just for the downtown village area. So it hasn't happened. Might it happen? Might we feel strongly enough? It's possible. And then we have to weigh how to do that. How It's kind of like George Lakey. How do you do a campaign that starts to grow and include more people? You take time and build it.
0: Do you have the cheerful disclaimer memorized? Sure. I think people need to hear it because it's one of the things that I think is distinctive It puts thinking about the transition town movement in the right place. Could you say it?
3: So, So the idea of the disclaimer is that we don't have all the answers kind of thing, right? It's not in the Bible of the transition handbook or anything. So the cheerful disclaimer is if we wait for governments to do the work that's necessary, it will be too late. If we only work as individuals to do the work, it'll be too little. But if we join together in a community to do this work, it might just be enough just in time.
0: And already some of us are sighing heavily because at the time of the Kyoto Accords, if we had agreed to what we've just agreed to in this past year, if we'd agreed to that back in 1995, if that was the right year, maybe we could have held the increasing global temperature average to a couple degrees. Right now, I think they're projecting it's going to be over 6, 7 degrees if we take action now. So this enough in time, I don't mean to be doom and gloom, because actually, in my experience, we have a mulling, I think that's what they call it, a mulling transition town movement in Eau Claire that the Quaker meeting and some other folks in the community we, we've put together – how fast is the transition town movement growing?
3: Well, it started in Totnes in 2005 in England. It's a little market town. Now there are about 1,200 initiatives there around the world. So it is not, you know, here we are 2016, right? And it's only 1,200. But I think as we begin to have more and more despair about what the governments aren't doing, that we are going to be looking for alternatives. And I'm really hoping that this is the first book in the United States that was written in the United States about transition. The rest have all been written in England. And so I'm really hoping that this is going to give me an entree into some multi-faith events around the country where I can talk about it. You can tell I'm really enthusiastic about this. I am not Pollyanna-ish. It is not hard. Community work is hard. Group work is hard. There are always some people who are all excited about it, you know, and they start getting going and then other people get tired. You have to figure out what keeps drawing people. My community, we meet once a quarter who are the kind of planners for what we're going to do. We're about 15 people. Anybody's welcome to come. We always start with dinner, potluck dinner, we have wine, we have beer, we have fun, we check in over dinner, and then we do our work because fun is important. When I interviewed people about what drew them to the transition movement, fun was right up there as one of them. It is fun.
0: So how is Charlotte, Vermont different because transition's there? What If you tried to take a visitor to Charlotte around to, say, Here's what Transition Charlotte. Here's the fingerprint of it. What would you show them?
3: I would show people around to the gardens and maybe take them to the food shelf to show where this food goes. I would certainly talk about our electronic waste, but I couldn't show them that because it only happens once a year. They could if they if they came in the beginning of May, they could see that happening. 30 people in our town were trained by Efficiency Vermont, which is a longer story about who they are, but they trained us to do energy visits so we took charts of a house into people's homes. So we had a chance to show how heat and energy is lost in homes. And we had light bulbs and low flow shower heads and stuff and walked all through their house and went and looked at their attics. And, you know, and so for some, we could just say, you know, you could probably insulate the attic more, you need to do this or that. For some homes, we said, there's a lot here, you probably need an audit. And here's where you you can get it. And, you know, if you don't have a lot of money, here's a, you know, help to get this energy audit so that these things can be done. So I could maybe take them to some of the homes where we did that. And people were very pleased with it. We held workshops called reskilling workshops. We taught people about canning food. We taught people about keeping poultry, raising goats, Scything. We had a scything workshop where people went out in a field. That was so popular we had to do two parts, one in the morning and one in the afternoon because (laughs) so many people wanted to do it. So we've done a lot of those kinds of things. We had a composting workshop where the Chittenden Solid Waste District donated 10 black composting bins and we had a little drawing and 10 households got them so I could take them around to the households. I could have them talk to people who maybe came to some of the events that we've had that moved them or touched them or changed them in some way. We've had people come and speak. We've had uh, certainly the documentaries. We've had local foods potlucks. We're not a market town, so it's really hard to find that kind of visible thing that you're talking about and I'll describe Totnes a little bit as a difference, but we have touched people in our community. We have an email list. We're able to get the word out to people, and people are grateful for it. They're grateful for the work that's being done. But if you're a market town, so Totnes, England is a small market town. They have shops, shops, They have an interrelationship among the shop owners and the people who live in the town. They shop at these places. They're bakeries. They don't have to go to a big supermarket. So Totnes created its own currency, and Totnes... Together, they planted nut trees in the middle of town so that now they're harvesting nuts that are there for everything. They've got lots of things that are physical manifestations of the work that they're doing because the opportunity is there. Every transition initiative is different. In Bristol, England, the Bristol pound, they have a 21 pound note. I asked Rob Hopkins, Why? He said, because we could do it, you know. (laughs) The mayor of Bristol gets paid totally in Bristol pounds. And what's wonderful about a local currency is that you can only spend it locally. So it builds on the local economy. It never is going to go out. When you use your dollar and you go to, I'm sure no Quakers are going to do this, go to Walmart with that dollar most of that dollar goes out of the community. But if you spend money in your own community or locally, most of that dollar stays there. But if you've got a local currency, you can only spend it in town. So the mayor buys everything from those places, and so that boosts their income. It's incredible. And they also are doing smartphone purchases. So somebody wants to buy something from a store person, and they say, oh, do you take this? Yes. And so the guy punches in the amount, it gets sent to her, she punches in, you know, her number, and then they're all set. I mean, it's just, it's so incredible what can be done where you've got real people doing a lot of stuff. And where you're in more rural areas, it's a different kind of challenge. And that's what's the beauty about it. It doesn't have to be the same everywhere.
0: I'm going to talk a lot more about Transition Town in just a moment. But first, I want to remind our listeners, you are tuned in to Spirit in Action, which is Northern Spirit Radio production. On the web, where is it? Northernspiritradio.org. On that site, there's 11 years of our programs for free listening and download, including one 11 years ago almost that included Rua Swenerfeld, who's been our guest now for the third time. Also on that site, there's links. So when you want to get to Rua's site, where she blogs and such, is TransitionVision.org. Or if you want to get to TransitionNetwork.org for the International Transition Town Movement. Or TransitionUS.org. All of those links will be on the Northern Spirit Radio site. Also on that site is a place to post comments. And we do really love two-way communication. We'd love to hear what you're thinking about. So please, post a comment when you visit. All also there's a place to donate that's how this work full time work is supported by your donations it's not by government it's not by corporations so it's very much like transition town so please support when you come but even more importantly i would say remember to support your local community radio station they provide a slice of news and of music. You get nowhere else, and alternative sources of information are so absolutely crucial. We really suggest that you support them first. Again, Rua Swenerfeld is here. I don't want to lose the most important part, the the kind of the cutting edge here, is to talk about the transition movement and people of faith.
3: So I'll be kind of brief, but I, I want to say that the transition movement, well, pre-transition movement initiation, Rob Hopkins, who was a Brit, was living in Kinsale, Ireland. And he was a permaculture teacher, and he taught at the Kinsale College of Further Education he had this moment when he discovered all the issues of peak oil and climate change and, you know, all these different things, and he calls it his dark night of the soul. And he realized that the permaculture, what he was teaching, had lots of principles and basic ethics that could be used. And so with his students... He created a descent energy plan with them. It was to say, well, let's look at where we're going to be in 20 years, and then what do we need to do to gradually get there rather than over the cliff? Because 20 years from now, we don't have any energy and we don't have any way of living. What do we have to do? So that's part of resilience, isn't it? So he had a home. He was building the whole permaculture thing, and the home burned down. And he and his family went back to England after that. And he started talking with other people, and they all said, wow, this is something that we really need to be doing. So that founded the transition movement in Totnes, England. It has all those elements of helping us work towards resilience, helping us work towards strong communities, which helps us work toward resilience. It's egalitarian. It uses open space technology in large meetings. I don't know, people might not know that, but it's like the whole gathering people sit around in this giant circle, and then there's a like a huge bulletin board and people have little notes and they they or there's a scribe, either way. People there say this is an issue that I think we should be talking about. And so all those issues are put up, and then people Can go to different corners or out into different rooms to talk about those issues. What it is, it's an agenda built up by the people who are present. NASA uses open space technology when they gather in making decisions and collaborating and creativity because it allows the creativity of the group. It allows the genius of the community to come forth. So all of those pieces are so exciting. They were having so much fun. And so a neighboring community said, whoa, we want to be doing what you're doing, right? How do we do this? And Rob said, I don't know, go figure it out. But soon they realized that there needed to be some sort of information about what they were doing. And Rob wrote the transition handbook. At first, when people bought it, they thought it was kind of like the transition Bible. Oh, we have to do it exactly the way that, you know, it's laid out here. First you do this, and then you do that. And you know. But now people understand that it's a guide. It gives you information. Then they realize that a lot of people need to be trained to learn how to work in groups. How do you share power How do you think about the issues of the world and how we're going to work together on that? So pretty soon they came up with a transition training. And then it started to grow in England and then throughout Europe and popped over the puddle, the Atlantic puddle, to the United States. Yeah, I started going to one. Of, I heard about the movement. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is, like, amazing. I've been working in the environmental field for decades. This seems like the answer to move us along. So I went to a transition training, and here I am, you know. When I retired from Quaker Earth Care Witness, I got a big grant from the generosity of the people that had been involved Then I got a couple of other grants and I went to Europe to learn about the transition movement by one-on-one interviews with people what is this all about? And I had a blog, Transition Vision. What is the vision that people are finding? That's how I used the grant. So I went to like about 10 countries and lots of initiatives in all over continental Europe and England and Ireland and up into Scandinavia. So then I came back to the States and I wasn't really sure what to write about because I've done a lot of different, pretty interesting things, and people keep saying, oh, write a book about it. But I didn't feel like, it wasn't clear that there was something new. So a couple of years ago, Quaker Institute for the Future asked me to write a book for Quakers about transition, because they're quite focused on Quakers. And I thought, well, why not broaden that to multi-faith because it shouldn't just be for Quakers. So I felt that I needed to start interviewing people, finding people who identified as faith-based. So I put out a request through Transition US, and then I got people who said, yeah, I'm willing, I'm willing, I'm willing. Then I got to ask them the question about how has your faith motivated you to be involved in transition? What do you bring to it? And what do you get back from that? What do you bring back? I needed to also, I wasn't going to be able to interview people from all faiths, but I wanted to know what faiths said. What did these different groups say about caring for earth? And that was really fun, kind of doing the research and finding out and being able to put those pieces in here. So hopefully it gets woven. This book is kind of like a primer, It talks about permaculture, the basis. It talks about the transition town and its history. And it has those interviews and interviews with the people of faith and my own kind of conclusion of where we can go.
0: At the beginning of the interview, Rua, you mentioned something that I think is key that I hadn't actually heard before, although I was part of a study group where we read the transition handbook. And so I'm well aware of the ideas. But you mentioned the inner transition. So could you talk more about that and its role and how it's actually spoken about in the movement?
3: Well, it's certainly different from, again, from each transition initiative. When you start groups to work on different issues in the community out of a big party called the Great Unleashing and people kind of move off into these subgroups that they can work on, one of those subgroups is kind of heart and soul And the idea of heart and soul is this idea of how do we bring inner transition? How do we make sure that people understand that the motivation to act in many ways means grounding to earth? It means really understanding that we have this strong relationship with earth. We're born of earth and uh, we depend on earth and all of its creatures. That as we explore that, we learn how to have that connection. And from the connection, we'll do anything we can. It's like being a a mama, fierce mama, who's going to protect her child. It's like we have to do whatever we can. So it's important to include that. And you might not have a heart and soul group. You might not talk about inner transition, but you can bring those ideas in. So it's built into this without calling it religious or spiritual or faith.
0: You mentioned that after you have your great unleashing, you have these different subgroups that sort out. I was amused to see downstairs in the building where this interview is happening at the Friends General Conference gathering that there's some people quilting down there. And my wife Sandra is part of a subgroup called the Fiber Arts. So what groups do you have in Charlotte? Charlotte
3: at that unleashing there was transportation education the pub (laughs) there was agriculture there was a, a table for heart and soul and a couple people went there but there wasn't kind of a enough so they went off and so we have to assume heart and soul is kind of within everything government energy that's another one so depending on how much a town is a market town or how, the population or whatever, it's going to vary. The creativity of the transition town movement is it started as a transition town. Now we kind of shorten it to the transition movement because it's more than towns. So the towns, some were like, what do you do? i interviewed somebody from transition Paris, Well, you're not going to get all those millions of people together in a room to do open space. So they had divided into separate areas and then had a hub. Very creative. Then you have representatives from those separate areas that get together. But each of those are their own transition initiative. Because they each, in a different neighborhood, are going to have different issues. And some are going to be overlapping. So hubs became a piece of it. Then they were like, well, you know, town cities, they're big Sometimes you can't even break it down to like an area because the areas are too big. So they started transition neighborhoods. So pick a neighborhood, pick your blocks or whatever you want and become a transition neighborhood. And there are some amazing results from some of those. There's a book called 21 Stories from Transition. It just came out recently by Rob. And they're just amazing kinds of things that people are doing. Well, so you've got neighborhoods. Well, sometimes neighborhoods can have a lot of people. What if they're all high-rise apartment buildings? You, know? you could have a transition apartment building. And now there's a big movement about transition streets. So just take your street, your block, you know, and do stuff. So there was one transition street in California where there's been a drought, and so they worked on water issues, and they're very proud of how much water they've saved in their community. You know, it just, it just holds out for any possible iteration of this. Anything can happen. That's what's so beautiful about it. There isn't one description of what has to happen. Now, the reason I wanted to start a pub was because in England and Ireland, people often gather in the pub. They have Transition Tuesdays. They have Green Drinks Night. You know, they have these events in the pub that bring lots of people together to have a good time. So I was making one of the calls to a guy in Ireland, and I said, well, where should we meet? And he said, well, let's meet in the pub for a pint. I said, whoa, that's really Irish. Let's do it, (laughs) you know? So uh, there's just this love of getting together, caring about each other, and then doing the work that needs to be done.
0: You know, as we're doing this interview, Rua, there's thunder and lightning going on outside. We could have a power outage. And just a few weeks ago in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where Northern Spirit Radio originates from, there are high winds and heavy rain, and we had some power outages and streets blocked by trees that felt it was kind of you had to weave around to get anywhere i was taking my granddaughter home got to her neighborhood people were out in the street and it was five five thirty on a friday afternoon and people were out in the street who had never met their neighbors and i think that transition town is like that that All of a sudden, you have a reason to be in the street. People used to have porches on the front of their house because you would visit your neighbors. Exactly. And and now that we have cars, you don't visit anybody. You just go to the back to stay away from the noise. So I think it's so crucial. When I visited an intentional community, an eco-community, and it's in Missouri called Dancing Rabbit, they had a couple options you could do that night. You could watch a Star Wars movie with these people on video. But the one that was heavily attended was the sewing night, and some people were quilting, some people are making puppets, some people are repairing clothes, and there were a few people who played instruments who just came and were jamming, and it was 20, 25 people there. It was absolutely wonderful, but I think it's so important that we get rid of the things that are distracting us, that are making us individuals exactly. in the society. Has your circle of friends grown because of transition?
3: Yeah, Actually, Lewis and I recognized that there were people in town that we didn't regularly meet with. They weren't the folks that hung out in our house, you know, and had fun together or whatever. One of those groups was people who belonged to the Grange. So we started attending Grange meetings and then became members, and now we're kind of officers in the Grange. It's a little different from our usual kinds of things. Their rituals are pretty different kind of stuff where you've got staffs and you do these different kinds of, you know, it's kind of odd. But at first, people were little like, who are we? <laughs> and now they've accepted us. And they weren't the Bernie voters. You know, we would wear our little Bernie buttons or whatever. And I've become much closer with a woman who owns the local store, who is a Republican, who is a justice of the peace. I vote for her all the time to be justice of the peace because she's in my community and I like her. And we've had some great conversations about how we're different, but that we can be friends. I mean, it's really great. So it has expanded this and they're all coming to our house in the fall to have a dinner and, you know, get together. It'll be the first time that we've hosted something at our house with them all. So it has expanded. And because different people have come to events, we've come to know people that are all over in the community. We know lots of people, and I write articles for our town newspaper. It comes out periodically. I write articles, and I kind of announce events. We have something called Front Porch Forum. Front Porch Forum is an online front porch. And people in Charlotte are on that, any who wouldn't want to, but there are lots of people. And they say things about, oh, well, my daughter's going to college and I'm selling brownies, or my dog is lost, or, you know, I've got a room for rent, or, you know, whatever. I mean, so many things that you would have done with somebody on the front porch. And it's in, I think, probably every town in Vermont now has a front porch forum. It started in a little neighborhood in Burlington. So I make announcements there. And so people know who I am that I don't know. So I'll introduce myself. Oh, yeah, you know, I see you were things in the newspaper. And I just wrote a whole home gardening article and interviewed a couple women in the town and talked about my connection to the land. And they talked about that too, about why they did the home gardening. So yes, it has really put me right out there. And so both Lewis and I have lots of at least people we know well that we didn't before. Friendship is the next step.
0: We've talked for longer than anticipated, Rua, so I I have to let our listeners know that some of this interview will not be broadcast. If you're hearing this via broadcast, remember to come to org, where you'll hear bonus excerpts. But before we sign off, Rua, is there anything else that you want to share with us? There's some magic here that's happening with transition and in your life. What can you leave us with?
3: So this is the end of the book. You know, uh, well, can I just promote Quaker Institute for the Future is an all-volunteer, nonprofit publishing company. So they would love for you to buy the book. It's only $15, and it'll probably take you only two nights to read it because it's it's short but pithy, right? It's a page-turner. Just ask Mark. So this is the end, which, you know, kind of gives away the punchline, right? We can find hope in being part of a transition initiative that brings people together who can support and encourage each other. It becomes an extended family, a family with a purpose— A family who care about the community where they live. A family who have a common vision of a resilient community that can rise to the challenge of climate chaos, diminishing fossil fuels, and economic uncertainty. We can find hope in the faith that guides us onto many paths that intersect and care for people and the planet. It guides us to want to make a difference in our communities, our states, our countries, and our world. And because of our communities of faith, we are supported in that work. Without the label of faith, the transition movement is a faithful community of people respecting one another and earth, looking for a transition from a fossil fuel-based consumer society to one that cares deeply for healthy relationships, walks gently on the earth, and rises to action on behalf of all that lives.
0: Amen. Rua, you've done such service. In case folks don't know, Rua and Lewis live off the grid, so to speak. And if some people think that that means you're short on energy, they need to get to know Rua (laughs) (laughs) Swennerfeld. Seventeen years as the General Secretary of Quaker Earth Care Witness. Uh, She's served on a number of different organizations, including Vermont's Interfaith Power and Light, writing ceaselessly. There's so many ways in which you're living out your deep connection with the earth. I think your father would be proud of you for that. I certainly am thankful to call you a friend. Thank you for joining me for Spirit in Action.
3: Thank you so much, Mark.
0: Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production help today. Find Rua Swennerfeld online at transitionvision.org and read her book Rise to the challenge, and join us again next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the
1: light. This
0: is Spirit in Action.